Hey, this is Stephen Dubner. The episode you're about to hear is the season three finale of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Season four will start on September 17th with 10 new episodes. As you can probably tell, we have a great time making this show. We hope you enjoy listening to it. As you can also tell, we like to constantly tweak the format, try new things. One thing we're trying over the summer is a short call-in segment of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So even though season four doesn't start till September, you might want to keep your ears open because we may be dropping some of these new short episodes as a bonus. Also, in early October, we've got six live shows coming up in New York City at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. For tickets or if you'd like to appear on the show, please visit tmsidk.com. Thanks for listening. Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find find out out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. (laughs) Because I want you to tell Tell me me something something I I don't know. Good evening. I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight, we are coming to you from... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We already know Philadelphia for its brotherly love, its revolutionary spirit, and for throwing batteries at opposing sports teams. But tonight, we're here to learn more. We have got an audience full of very smart people, and we will invite them up one at a time to tell us things that are interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. If it goes as planned, we will all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, would you please welcome the author, entrepreneur, and all-around interesting human being, James Altucher. Hello, James. I'd like to begin by telling folks what we already know about you thus far, all right? We know that you have invested in and started a bunch of companies, that you've gone boom and bust a couple times. We know you've written more books than most people have read, including most recently Reinvent Yourself. We know you host the James Altucher Show podcast and that you are an honorary colonel in the state of Kentucky. So James Altucher, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Well, one time I had a meeting with a potential employer and he didn't hire me because he didn't, he didn't quite trust me. And he said, the last thing we need to see is the name Bernard Madoff Securities on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so you, so he you, didn't. Hi- so Bernie Madoff didn't hire me. Well, James, I'm I'm glad it worked out better for you than for him. Uh, very happy to have you here tonight, James. For tell me something I don't know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I. We'll hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and eventually our live audience will pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact checker, Mike Maughan. Mike is head of global insights at the software company Qualtrics. Mike, are you going to be willing to call BS on anything fishy here tonight? That's a fair question. So I was voted the friendliest 
every year in high school, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be nice to the presenters. And as a side note, I, I think I was only voted friendliest because every girl just put me in the friend zone. Oh, yeah. Mike. So, thanks, everybody. All right, then. Mike, James, time to play. Tell me something I don't know, Philadelphia style. Would you please welcome our first guest, Jamie Fisher. Jamie, hi there. What do you do? Hi. I'm the director of the American Sign Language and Deaf Studies Program at the University of Pennsylvania. That's, is that part of linguistics or something yes, like that? Yes, I'm in the Department of Linguistics there. Very good. Okay. I am ready. So are James Altucher and Mike Maughan. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Sure. So there are three common misconceptions about American Sign Language. One is that it's not a language. It's just miming or pictures in the air. Two, it's universally understood. And three is simply a manual encoding of English, like so it's just English on your hands. And all of these are actually false. ASL is a totally separate language from English. In fact, it was my first language because I have deaf parents who are here tonight. And like any other language, ASL has dialects. So it has a black dialect and even has a Philadelphia dialect. Which, no way. Yes. So what, how, what's the difference between like a Philadelphia dialect and English? <laughs> well, English is... English, it's a spoken language, and then so ASL is a totally separate language from English. And then beyond that, ASL in Philadelphia, as we are finding, is even slightly more different than ASL in the United States. When we talk about Philadelphia sign, it's generally intelligible to anybody else who uses American Sign Language, so it's a dialect within American Sign Language. Is it, is it uh, vocabulary then, or no? Right, so we're not really sure. So we, um, at the University of Pennsylvania, in the Department of Linguistics, and with Gallaudet University, which is in Washington, D.C., we're trying to figure out if it's more than that. Like, some people here in Philly would be familiar with the fact that we say wooder, or we say, oh, oh. right, or we say hoagie, but, and Philadelphia ASL is similar in that sense, but we're not sure if there's more to it than that. Because if you ask around... People who are from the United States who use ASL, there's regional you know, variation everywhere, but people will say, oh, Philly, uh, yeah, you're just weird. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out exactly why, and so we're using linguistic analysis to do so. Is there any uh, dialects in ASL that don't correspond to dialects in English or le- verbal language? American Sign Language actually is not even related to Hmm. English at all. It's actually related to French Sign Language. And that's because of where and how those sign languages originated then? That's right. So what happened um, in the United States, and typically for all sign languages around the world, is there's sort of a a convergence of deaf people for whatever reason in the United States. And elsewhere, it's oftentimes because of school. And so um, there was a teacher from France named Laurent Claire who was persuaded to come to the United States and start a deaf school in the United States. So he brought his French Sign Language, and they had a, a group of new students who came together at this new school who didn't have any sign language before that, right? So he teaches the French Sign Language, and then yet they had these different gestures that they would use you know, at home so they could communicate at home, and, but they weren't the same. Like if one person came to another person's house and said, this is my sign for a table, and they say, no, this is my sign for a table. There was no systematicity to it, right? You mentioned uh, ASL was your first language because your parents are deaf. How did they meet? That's a really great question because a lot of deaf people like, sort of come together in, in places. My parents met at a deaf club in New Jersey. How do you say in ASL um, or in Philadelphia dialect, um, I am an Eagles fan and I'm going to throw a battery at you now? <laughs> Um, well, um, it wouldn't really play well on the radio, but you, if you want me to sign it, I will. Yeah. So, 
So I have to say, <laughs> it reminds me, knowing nothing about sign language, of um, the signs that baseball um, teams use to hide their upcoming moves from the other team. Is there any connection between those signs and sign language? Or no? Yes, definitely. In the 1800s, when baseball was new, um, there was baseball playing happening at deaf schools all around the country. Um, and actually, there was contact with like some of the umpires who came into baseball. And they had contact with some of the deaf players who um, came into the major leagues, too. And so my dad and I actually did some research, and it was, it was shown that some of the hand signals that are used in baseball today came from those deaf players themselves. So interesting. Jamie, Mike Maughan, uh, Jamie's been telling us about different dialects of sign language. What more do you have to add there? Well, first, I just want to say that Jamie is most well-known for helping Today.com clarify that Johnny Depp and Natalie Portman did not, in fact, sign the word tampon in a Paul McCartney music video. Yep, that's so, true. <laughs> from all of us... Thank you for your incredible oh, yeah. contribution to the world. <laughs> so it turns out there are 130 distinct sign languages worldwide and a lot of variations in sign language speed. So New Yorkers are notorious for being fast talkers, while Ohioans are more calm and relaxed. New Yorkers also curse more in sign. And people in the southern United States tend to touch their lower face and chest a lot when they sign, which has become a distinctive regional accent. Lastly, and most importantly, just like American English speakers feel about Australians, for example, people with certain foreign accents or dialects in sign are considered more attractive. Mike Maughan, great job. Jamie, fantastic job. Thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our next guest, Mike Solomonoff. Hey, Mike, I have a feeling you are pretty well-known to many people in the audience here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Uh, my name is Mike Solomonov. I'm the chef and uh, co-owner of Zahav Restaurant here in Philadelphia. And Federal Donuts as well. Federal yes. Donuts, Diesengoff, Abe Fisher, Rooster Soup, and Goldie Falafel. There you go. Now, um, I have to say, when I think of uh, chef, Physique, I think of a little on the husky side, and, and you look uh, pretty unhusky. What's your uh, what's your secret? Um, I work out at a boxing gym uh, uh, a lot here called Joe Hand, uh-huh. uh, which was um, started by Joe Frazier actually. And I eat the Mediterranean diet all the uh, time. Uh. How many donuts a week do you eat? Far too many. I yeah. eat a lot of donuts. You yeah. Do. yeah. All right. What do you have for us tonight, then? Mike? Uh, so I'm actually here to talk about trina or sesame paste. Okay. And I have no other information in my head other than sesame paste. <laughs> where where does sesame paste come from? Now, sesame, but you called it tahina, so, which is Hebrew, what, we, what most people commonly call tahini, I gather. Tahini, tahina, or tahina. Okay, very good. Yeah, in Hebrew, you like to stick as many consonants together as <laughs> okay. possible. All right, so you're asking us where does it come from? So or you're gonna... I always thought that, um, that because of the uh, Israeli and Palestinian love for tahina, for raw sesame paste, it had to grow there, but... It doesn't at all. Huh. In fact, it's such a small, arid piece of land, they can't possibly keep up with the demand, right? So, Are you telling me all the tahini in the world is grown in Philadelphia? It is, in South Philadelphia. 
No, so most of the world's tchina actually comes from China, or most of the sesame is grown in China. Okay. Uh, but the best stuff, in my opinion, uh, is grown in Ethiopia. Uh, the Humera variety, which is a sweet variety that uh, we love, is grown in Ethiopia. We get it processed in Nazareth, and we actually have one of the best Trina distributors in the world here in Philadelphia. Is that re- connected to your consumption of it? No, it just happens to be random. James, do you eat a lot of tahini? Tahina? Well, I actually don't even really. So you're saying it's sesame? Uh, what, what's sesame? We need to take a step back then. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, like, break it down. I don't know what even sesame is. You ever had a bagel with, like, a, with sesame ba- seeds? Yeah, I just know the bagel. Okay. So if you were to take your bagel and shake it over a paper bag, take all those contents, and then you steam them, you dry them, uh, you mechanically take the hulls off, and then you um, toast it or roast it at a very low temperature for a very long period of time, and then puree it, you have trina. So wait, you're saying that you called it a hull. So we eat, what's on the outside of a bagel, we're eating the whole thing then? We're, no, you're actually, it depends on where you buy your bagels, but typically that is without the hull. Gotcha. And what I always thought before uh, researching it was that the best trina actually came from unprocessed sesame, but the truth is there's way too much water and way too much fiber to get it as smooth as you want. What do they grow? Do they grow in gigantic clusters or do you have to pick them one no, by one? No, they're actually tiny little pods that almost look like cardamom uh, and then they're split open. That really helps. A cardamom pod, yeah. <laughs> so, so wait, so after you roast, after you roast this for like a thousand years and it turns into tahina... Tahina. <laughs> it's tahina. You ready? Tahin. <laughs> Thank you. So wait, after you do all this roasting, can yeah. you then put it in a circle and fry it and make a donut? Yes. And do you do a tahina donut? I want a tahina donut now. Actually, believe it or not, in Federal Donuts opening menu, we had a tahina and pomegranate donut. Oh. So, Mike, I have a question for you. Yeah, so my first encounter with tahini was, uh, so I'm the youngest of a big family, and my, I had some brothers go hippie in the 70s. Right. And they had it around a lot, um, and it tasted like, uh, I would call it like a mixture of socks and urine. It was uh, bitter and bleh. But I know there's been a renaissance now. Is the renaissance connected to the fact that it's gotten good? Is that the idea? Uh, no, I think, it's the, I think the demand is now greater. I think the stuff that we were used to having that tasted like socks or urine... I never, I've never tasted urine, so... <laughs> well, I grew up with stuff because we, I grew up in, uh, in Pittsburgh, in Squirrel Hill, actually, to uh, an Israeli father and an American mother. And instead of, like, butter on the table, we had trina. But the fact of the matter was, it was, like, not... There weren't that many varieties of it. There weren't that many brands, and it definitely tasted... Terrible. Um, um, and as a chef now, tell us about the breadth of its use. Well, I mean, we use it to distinguish Israeli cuisine from other Middle Eastern or Mediterranean cuisine. So we don't mix milk and meat at Zahav. We're not a kosher restaurant, but I think that the, um, the flavor profile of Israeli food should be like grilled barbecued meat over charcoal with the trina on the bread with the za'atar. And as a chef that's trained... Uh, sort of globally, when you roast a lamb leg, you think yogurt, but that that contradicts the Israeli palate, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So we use trina for sauces, for vinaigrettes. We use it to thicken hummus. We spread it on toast. We The Israeli peanut butter and jelly sandwich is stale bread, raw tahina, and date molasses. Mm. And it is like the best thing ever. Um, so that is 
It's used for absolutely everything, for desserts, for confections, for halva, for everything. You said um, most of the sesame these days is grown in China, but the best is grown in Ethiopia, in your, in in my your opinion, opinion, at least. Yes. Um, can you tell us anything about, you know, what makes it, is it climate, is it uh, technique, what is it? Uh, it is climate, I think mostly climate, and, uh, and I think that uh, the Humera variety in particular does very well in Ethiopia. Mike Mon, you have some facts for us, what do you think? Yeah, so the first thing I want to say I'm a fact checker, and the, the biggest fact I can find is that literally no one was curious about raw sesame paste. Like, <laughs> ever. Um, Have a good night. So, that was, that was number one. Worldwide demand for sesame has surged 20% in each of the last two years, much of that uh, demand driven by tahini. And in Ethiopia, the sesame, which is painstakingly hand-harvested, much like cardamom, um, is the second most profitable export. And most interesting, everything does indeed go back to China, which provided $3.3 billion to the Ethiopian government to build a railway. And then Ethiopia is paying that loan back from the proceeds of sesame seed sales. This was educational and interesting as heck. Mike Salamanov, thanks a million. That was great. Would you please welcome our next guest, Alexis Pedrick. Hello, Alexis. Hello. So happy to have you here. What do you do? Uh, so I am a history geek and science nerd, and I manage outreach and education for the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Like you celebrate the heritage of chemicals? <laughs> like the periodic so, table? Is so we actually everywhere? do the history of science. So we're a museum, we have a fellowship program, a research library, and uh, yeah. All right, what do you have for us tonight? Uh, so we have urine to thank for modern day fireworks. We have urine. <laughs> urine. We're developing a whole palette here. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have urine to thank for modern day fireworks. Tell me more, I like that. Well, uh, Henning Brand is a 17th century alchemist who funds his experiments by marrying wealthy ladies, as one does. <laughs> and like most alchemists, he believed that you could transmute lesser materials, in this case, urine, into gold. Um. So he got about a thousand gallons of it, went to his basement lab. He got about a thousand gallons of it. Okay, so first of all, was it human urine? And yes, it, yes. Because um, of its chemical properties, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, like urine, if you, uh, it has urea in it, and if that decays, it turns into ammonia. So it's really useful. It can like soften leather if you want to let leather sit in vats of urine. <laughs> Do you have a leather jacket, Stephen? It's used to break down the hulls of um, sesame so, seeds. So wait, I feel, I feel like there's like a book here, like a thousand uses of urine. Like, what other, what other, this is a bestseller. What other uses of urine are there? Well, you know what? It, it really, it brightens the color of dyes. Uh, the Romans used to use it as mouthwash. Uh, so <laughs> they had that going for you them. You know, I just remembered, I once met uh, a very famous um, pop star, and her skin was amazing. My wife was traveling with me, and she asked her, what's your secret? And she said that her secret was to wash her face every morning with the first urine of the day. 
Um, was gold almost always the end aim of an alchemist? Uh, sometimes it was immortality. Sometimes it was like things that could cure your sickness. I mean, they wanted to solve a lot of problems. And so, yes, they went about it in a lot of crazy ways, but they were experimenting, and but that's good. can I good. ask you this? I mean, um, in, in what ways is alchemy different than applied chemistry? Uh, it's actually not. So alchemy is sort of the really early chemistry. So like Hennig takes the <laughs> gallons and gallons of urine and he starts boiling it down to try and separate out a substance that he believes will give him gold. Now, it doesn't give him gold. It actually gives him white phosphorus, uh, which is eminently useful, right? We use it in fireworks. We use it in explosives. It self-ignites in the air. Um, but he got that by doing that level of experimentation. So, you know, yes, a little bit crazy, but also, like, super useful. So once you separate out the white phosphorus, how does it not just explode <laughs> all over you? Uh, well, so he was pretty careful with it. Uh, he actually, he called it cold fire. So he's pretty careful with it. Um, and people were fascinated by it. Uh, he actually sold the secrets to a number of people, obviously, for the right price. Um, and it pretty much, it stayed a secret until around the 1730s when someone leaked it to uh, a science leaked journal. Someone leaked yeah, someone leaked secret. it, literally. Yeah. So he kept it a secret because urine was almost like a weapon of mass destruction. So in addition to explosives, fireworks, we use it in fertilizer. Uh, red phosphorus is what's on the side of your matchboxes. When you strike them, it turns into white phosphorus, and that's what makes it ignite. So, I mean, we, we use it in a lot of stuff. Now, you talked about this discovery leading to fireworks, but fireworks were around a couple thousand years earlier, yeah? They were indeed. So the fireworks also come to us from alchemists, uh, Chinese alchemists. They, the rumor is that they were trying to find uh, the secret to immortality. That's not crazy in the world of alchemy. Um, and so they put together saltpeter, sulfur, uh, charcoal, and they sort of made a chemical gunpowder. And they'd stuff that into bamboo shoots and light it, and it was like a sparkler. And, and voila, fireworks. So, uh, Alexis, I have a very practical question. Yes. Which is, let's say... Um, I crash landed onto a, a deserted island. Right. And there's no water on the island. Right. How many times can I re-drink my own urine <laughs> before it's no longer useful to keeping me alive? Uh, I would recommend trying to get off the island and focus focus your energy on that because you don't want to be stuck drinking your own oh, urine. Oh, such useless practicality, Alexis. <laughs> Mike Mon, uh, Alexis has been telling us more about urine than we ever thought we would uh, care to know, but it's fascinating. What more can you tell us? Hennig Brand is not the first person to wonder about the uses of urine. I am super curious how these people got started. There is a pop star, also won't say the name, but rhymes with Wadana. <laughs> She once claimed to swear by using urine as an antiseptic. On the David Letterman show, Madonna said, peeing in the shower is really good at fighting athlete's foot. Um, It's also been shown to to work gangbusters as a toner and spot treatment, and it's been used for generations. Uh, In Rome, Pliny the Elder recommended fresh urine for the treatment of sores, burns, affections of the anus, chaps, and scorpion stings, and the father of chemistry, Robert Boyle, advised certain patients to drink every morning a moderate draft of their own urine, preferably while tis yet warm. (laughs) Mm. So there you go. (laughs) There you go. Fascinating. Alexis Pedrick, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. (laughs) 
It is time for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We'll make James Altucher tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. My co-host tonight is James Altucher. Before we get back to our guest from the audience, James, I've got some lightning round questions written especially for you. You ready? I, I think I am. Go for it. James, we know you've done so many things. What are you exactly? So I've pretty much been a failure at business, a failure as a writer, a failure or a mediocre podcaster, uh, failure at stand-up comedy, and failed husband and a mediocre father. Nice. I, um, you're successful at candor, I have to say that. Uh, um, James, let me ask you this. You lost uh, most or all of your money a couple times. What did you learn from that? I w- learned that it's really depressing to lose all your money, and the most importantly, Money will not solve all your problems, but money will solve your money problems. Okay. Uh, you've been doing your podcast, The James Altucher Show, for a few years now? Three, three yeah, four three years? Yeah, three or four years. Um, it's hard to pick one, but just tell me about a guest or an experience with a guest that you just found sublime. There was a young man I once knew who uh, his book was about to come out, and he was really depressed. He was actually crying, and... I lied to him because I had read the galleys, and I said, don't worry, your book's going to be a bestseller. I was totally lying. I was thinking, gosh, how am I going to cheer him up when he cries? Twelve years later, he came on my podcast, and that young man was named Stephen Dunbar, and the book was Freakonomics. Okay. I didn't cry. Okay, so James, we know you're a very good chess player. How would you do in a match with Gary Kasparov? Well, I did play Gary Kasparov in chess, and uh, uh, he, of course, beat me. <laughs> He's the world chess, greatest chess player in world history, but very interesting that I've never seen anybody else do. The whole game, almost every move, he spent a lot of time adjusting all of my pieces. Like It's almost like this Ooh. psychological dominance that he had to have over the entire board. Is that, uh, is that allowed in a chess game yeah, to touch yeah. the other player's then, pieces? Yeah, it is. And then, and then he would also, he would like screw in his pieces. He would like bang his piece on the board when he moved and he'd like screw it in. Like, don't mess with my piece. Did, but, it, did it have what you think was the desired effect? Did it intimidate you? Well, I was playing the greatest. He was intimidating no matter what. He's like staring and ferocious and he just crushed me. Well. All right, and finally, James Altucher, we know that you grew up in New Jersey, but you wanted the city life, and you could have chosen Philadelphia or New York, and you chose New York. Why? What did Philadelphia ever do to you? So I love Philadelphia, but A, I don't have any brothers, so the whole city of brotherly love thing didn't work for me. (laughs) I don't eat cheese, so the whole cheesesteak thing did not work. James Altucher, nicely done. All right, let's get back to the game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Andrew Spence. Hey, Andrew, what do you do? 
I'm a professor of bioengineering at Temple, and I'm interested in how animals move. So what, what is bioengineering? It, honestly, it has an identity crisis. Half of the people in it want to do prosthetic limbs, and half of the people want to make lungs in a dish. So tell us what you have to tell us. Yeah. So um, I'm sure you've probably noticed that uh, cockroaches are really fast. So there's a species of cockroach that can go 50 body lengths a second, which is us going 210 miles an hour, which imagine you're... 50 what a second? Body lengths. Yeah, this is one of these normalization of things. Of the roach. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Not exactly. your body. Not my body. <laughs> right, right. Call James. Dude, not 50 James. I'll call you today. Exactly. Um, and they're really robust. Another species can handle being squished with 900 times its body weight. And so the secret to that speed and robustness turns out not to be amazing brains or big muscles, but really intelligent mechanics. So evolution tuned the mechanics of the roach in the same way that your BMW, <laughs> that the smooth ride would be due to the engineers tuning the springs and the dampers in the wheel wells. Um, it was discovered by running cockroaches over condoms and by putting cannons on their back and doing all kinds of the beautiful sort of old school biology that I think I feel is we amazing. need to back up a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> all right, yeah, right. Let me start with the basic. Running cockroaches over condoms tells you what? So basically, the, the history of it is if you run humans over soft surfaces, they stiffen their leg to compensate. Ah. And I was interested in whether cockroaches can do the same thing. It's hard because they make a virtual pogo stick leg out of three legs at once. And so I was trying to come up with a surface that was the same stiffness as a trampoline for a cockroach. And if you scale down from human size, the answer is latex. And I was at Berkeley at the time, so, you know, the joke was... you just happen to have condoms yeah, lying around all the time. Yeah. And actually, the dirty little secret of that study is we used dental dams, actually, oh, because uh-huh. we were cutting condoms and trying to stretch them out, and, like, they were always, you know, curvy. Is it the same, uh, same material? Essentially the same, same material? Same material, but it comes in a sheet. Yeah. All right, you also said that you put cannons on the back of the roaches, just for fun, that was? Or so, to... Yeah, no, that was, that was actually the thing that changed our field. Um, and actually, I, did, I should say, I didn't, I didn't do that study. Um, but it was an amazing PhD student. The idea was to see how fast they can react. And there was this old 100 years of neuroscience where everyone was like, nervous system is the thing that does everything. And, and uh, my professor at the time was like, I think mechanics is important. How can we push them so fast they don't have time to think and respond? And the answer was a cannon. And so this PhD student built a cannon out of a Bic pen shaft, went and bought gunpowder, packed it in there, got went a little, and bought a... Got a little urine. Got a to toss it in for, could it, And maybe, a little tahina while he's at it, just right, for, you know, this is, and spice then, it up. Exactly. And then packed a BB in there and fired it. He did it, reloaded it a thousand times and got ten good runs. The cannon is where? It's on the roach? Yeah, bolted on. And what happens to the roach when you fire the cannon? It gets shoved sideways. Why are you testing this, though? What's... Yeah, so the, the, idea was, right, the idea was to see how fast they respond. And the answer was, you shove the cockroach sideways with a really fast impulse, and it starts recovering in ten milliseconds. There's not enough time for the brain to react. So, okay, so you're making right. one, at least one big argument, which is that it's not the cognitive process, but right. it's some uh, physical reflexivity, right? Exactly. This, if you're trying to get a grant, the sexy term is preflexes. Ah, yeah, reflexes, preflexes. Ah, uh, so uh. whenever I see, like, even one roach ever, like, I jump. So, like, right. how did you overcome that... Uh, I don't know, that just raw fear that I get when I see roaches. Yeah, honestly, it was watching slow motion videos and dissecting them. 
So if you, if you grab some and look at them, they're actually really amazing. You look at them under a microscope, you're like, actually, that's pretty sweet. And then... But are they disgusting, though? <laughs> I mean, they're still pretty gross. They puke on you. They like to wedge. So if you hold your hand like this and let them wedge under your thumb, they're really happy. Is that like spooning? It's a little bit like spooning. So, um, I want to know a little bit more, however, about applications, right? So what are you learning from the complexity of those mechanics that might be useful, whether it's building better machines for us, or maybe it has to do with humans somehow even. No, already it is. So if you look at like Oscar Pistorius's cheetah legs and those kind of carbon fiber sea legs, prosthetic limbs, it's really, the temptation is to go in with lots of controllers and actuators and fanciness, and then someone comes along and goes, actually, if you just put a spring there, ah. you can get 90% of the reaction time and not have any complexity. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it really helps to put the intelligence in the mechanics. And so do you do robotics? Yeah. We have a, a, a six-legged robot called Gary. Um, he's actually provided by the University of Pennsylvania. The nice thing with robots is you can do things that would be unethical in animals, right? Uh, so if I have a hypothesis on about... On roaches? Even unethical on roaches? No, we can do whatever we want to roaches. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, no, yeah. Nobody cares, yeah, nobody about, cares roaches. about roaches. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Mike Mon, uh, robo-roaches, we'll call them. What more can you tell us about the roach? So I just want to say, first of all, cockroaches are older than dinosaurs. They can hold their breath for up to 40 minutes. They can live for a week without a head. And they can survive a nuclear explosion. So... This super fast cockroach that you're talking about is sometimes called a discoid cockroach. Its other amazing use is that it's often used in insect eating competitions. Goodness gracious, I feel I learned almost too much uh, with this one. Just fascinating. So, Andrew Spence, really nicely done. Thanks for playing. Would you please welcome our next guest, Marcy Engelman? Come on up, Marcy. Hi there, Marcy. What Hi. do you do? Uh, I am currently the museum educator at the Mutter Museum. Oh, we love the Mutter. I mean, it is the weirdest museum in the world, yeah? You got... I like to think so. Can you... Um, so for those who haven't been fortunate enough to, to visit there, um, can you just give us a really quick history? Who was... It was a Dr. Mutter? It was his yes. house and so on? Uh, there was a Dr. Thomas Dent Mutter, who was a fellow of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, and he donated his teaching specimen collection... 1,300 specimens to the college so that we could start a museum. Yeah, okay. So you, I'm sure you can tell us a lot of things we don't know based on uh, what's in there. What do you have for us tonight? Well, I wanted to talk to you about Otzi the Iceman and his tattoos. All right, let's hear it. So in 1991, some hikers in the mountains in the northern Italy found a body. And uh, summarily, this body was brought to a museum of archaeology in Bolzano, Italy. And uh, they named him Otzi the Iceman for the name of the region he was found in. Um, they learned a lot about him. And one of the things they noticed was he was covered in 61 tattoos, mostly in the shape of lines and crosses. Wait, how old? How old was this They body? estimate he was 5,300 years old. And he's in the ice and therefore the skin is preserved? That's Everything's completely intact. So these tattoos were not made with a needle. They were made by rubbing pulverized charcoal into fine incisions. Mm. And um, they found these tattoos primarily around his spine and his joints. And these areas of his body showed a lot of wear and tear and degenerative disease. So they believe that these tattoos were done as a form of pain relief, similar to acupuncture. However, Otzi is almost 2,000 years older than acupuncture as we know it. So it worked. Well, <laughs> well, he died, so maybe not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well. Uh, they actually believe he was murdered. 
No way. How yeah. do they know that? They found an arrow embedded in his left shoulder. Yeah, that's a good Foul play suspected. Yeah. suspected. That'll do it. So when you say tattoos, it's not in the sense that we think of them now as decorative or that's whatever, correct. signaling. These were... Um, Medicinal. Therapeutic, okay. yeah. But, okay, so do we know, do we have any sense of what they were treating? Um, they, there was some um, arthrosclerosis and degenerative joint disease from just wear and tear. They estimate he was about 45 years old, which was very high in age for somebody of that time period. Marcy, do you have a tattoo? I have several. So wait, are those done with a needle now? And that is correct. They're done with in? a tattoo machine. Which so is... how's a tattoo made? Like you, you, the needle go, goes in there and then injects you with ink? It's not actually an injection like a hypodermic needle. Um, the, the needles are solid and when they perforate the skin, it creates a hole and then that hole kind of sucks in the ink like capillary action. Mm. And then the ink becomes embedded in the dermal layer of your skin. Um, the epidermis is shed quite frequently, as you know, like when you get a sunburn or something like that. But the dermal layer is permanent. How does um, charcoal make a tattoo? Well, again, the, the charcoal acts as an ink. And they pulverize it and probably add a little bit of a liquid to it. In the past, they have used urine as, as a mixture for tattoo ink. And uh, it becomes what embedded in the... What is urine useful for? See? Um, so, do you have uh, some other tattoos at the Motor Museum? We do. We have several examples of tattooed skin preserved in jars. Ah, nice. Um, for anyone interesting? We don't know who the individuals are that the tattoos came from, but I can tell you there's uh, a quite interesting one of Jesus on the cross, there's another of a headstone, and then there's one of a really creepy clown. So, this was with charcoal. Do coal miners, with their exposure to coal, also get tattoos? Yes, it can, it can, especially if they suffer some type of injury to the skin. That charcoal or the coal can penetrate the outer layers of the skin and become permanent. It happens if you get poked with a pencil real hard, and sometimes it becomes a permanent mark with the graphite. Such good stuff. Mike Mon, uh, tattoos near and far, what more can you tell us? So tattooing back in ancient Egypt used to be a big sign of prestige, Friendly hint to you under 40s, it's not anymore. Um, the hip tattoo was judged to be the most influential trend of 2017. And the most tattooed man in the world today is this Australian guy named Lucky Diamond Rich. He spent over a thousand hours being tattooed, started with colorful designs from around the world, then went for 100% covering of his entire body in black ink, including eyelids, skin between the toes, into his ears, and even his gums. And he's now being tattooed with white designs on top of the black and then putting color designs on top of the white tattoos. Lovely. Thank you, Mike. And thank, thank you. you, Marcy, very much. It's time for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We'll talk about everything we've learned tonight. And yes, we will pick a winner. That is right after this break. Welcome back. We're coming to you from Philadelphia tonight. Would you please welcome our next guest, which is actually a pair of guests, Morgan Obadowski and Linda Huss. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. I'm Morgan Obadowski. Hi, Morgan. Linda. I'm Linda Huss. What do you guys do? I'm a publicist. And I'm the co-host of Drink, Drank, Drunk. It's a grammar <laughs> podcast okay, where yeah. I get drunk and I pretend that I know a lot of things. <laughs> okay. Linda? 
Uh, I'm a writer and editor, and I am also a co-host of Drink, Drank, Drunk. Do you get as drunk as Morgan? We go back and forth about who gets the drunkest. I see. <laughs> All right. Uh, very eager to hear what you have to tell us tonight. Take it away. Okay. What do you think to make a Virginia fence means? A Virginia fence? Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you answer that first. Is it a fence you build to keep people away from your Virginia ham? Because I know people really love their Virginia ham. So actually to make a Virginia fence means to walk unsteadily or really just to be drunk. Um, So we're getting this from the experts. Yes. Um, So we know this because um, of the Dictionary of American Regional English, or DARE. Tell me more. That sounds really interesting. The project started in 1965 when English professor Frederick Gomez Cassidy launched a fleet of vans across the United States. And these word wagons went to more than a thousand places, and their mission was to collect and record American idioms and dialects before they went extinct. Wow. This reminds me of um, Alan Lomax and people like musicographers, right, who went around collecting music. So the idea was to collect the language Mm -hmm. that's not going to show up in normal standard dictionaries and so on. the regionalisms. Wow. And Mm -hmm. not just the um, words, but also the pronunciations that people were using. So they had um, this story called The Story of Arthur the Rat, uh, that they had people read so that they could capture all of these different American sounds. And we actually have a, a clip of that. The story of Arthur the Rat. Once upon a time, there was a young rat who couldn't make up his mind. Just then, the old rat caught sight of young Arthur. That was the name of the shaker. I think I'll go tomorrow, he said to himself. But then again, perhaps I won't. Interesting. What are the parts of the country where there was a lot of, you know, dialect that was unique to that place, for instance? Sure. There's not one region that can be pointed to because everywhere was so specific. And they went to Alaska, they went to the Florida Keys, they went to Maine. And what they would do was pick individuals, usually middle-aged and up because they had more history and experience with the words. And they would ask them almost 1,900 questions. Wow. And it sometimes took a week. And it was all recorded on these huge reels of tape. So what were some other examples? Oh, we have lots. So, <laughs> so another one for drunk, which is fun, is how come you so? Uh, not to be confused with how came you so, which can mean pregnant. Um, So I have a question. What would you say would be like a category of words Mm -hmm. that would tend to vary most from region to region? Like is it things about nature or things about work or things about people? Is there any way to... It really runs the gamut because there are 60,000 entries, I think, for anything. Like there are things... um, like even just to describe an earring, an ear screw is one that um, is used in Lower Mississippi Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> to spin street yarn is to gossip, especially in New England. That one makes oh, sense. That's, yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. And in Pennsylvania, to bag school is to play hooky. Uh huh. Which some people might know here. Mike Mon, uh, the Dictionary of American Regional English. What more can you tell us? 
So it's still going, and people are still looking at, at all of these things. It's mostly useful to librarians, teachers, historians, journalists, and playwrights. It's also been used often by physicians who are trying to treat things locally, lawyers who are trying uh, to help with trademarks, or actors who are trying to perfect regional accents. The, the big gist, though, is a lot of these uses of words are going away because so much homogeneity is happening as a result of our mass culture and how everything is integrated. Uh, for example, it talks about how Subway has largely settled the debate as to what we call a, a hoagie or a grinder, et cetera, because Mm-mm, people just call here. it. Not here. No way. <laughs> It's, it's a hoagie in Philadelphia. So, there, I mean, there are a few things that are, are local to, to uh, this region, for example. A piggyback ride is called a buckleback. Uh, belly guts are sticks of pulled molasses candy. And a ball hoot is when someone tumbles precipitously down a hill. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm having a ball hoot. Thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Thank Know. Thank you. Morgan and Linda. Great job. Word wagons. I love the idea of the word wagons, James. I feel like you and I should come up with a modern equivalent of the word wagon. Get a get a truck and go around collecting something from America. Yeah, our dictionary. What, but I don't want to collect Care. words. That's already been done. Maybe urine samples would be a nice... Uh, there is a word for that. It's called... What is it? We learned that on an earlier episode. Gross, I think. Gross. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the game. Would you please welcome Conrad Benner. Hey, Conrad, what do you do? Uh, I was born and raised in Fishtown. Um, I'm a photographer, and I run a blog here in Philadelphia called Streets Department that highlights and celebrates street art and graffiti. Okay. And apparently people love it. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Okay, what do you have for us tonight? So I am here to tell you that Philadelphia is the birthplace of the modern-day graffiti movement. No way. Really? Yeah. James, uh, did you know that? I, I mean, if I were to guess, I would have to say, like, New York and the Bronx. <laughs> no, right, but that's true. Yeah, a lot of people think, you know, maybe L.A. or Berlin or, or the... I think a lot of people think of, like, the subway graffiti of New York City in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but, yeah, it was here in Philadelphia. So tell us more. And was it uh, a particular person or group of people? Had that happen? It was a particular person. Uh, so uh, it started in the mid-60s by, with a man named Daryl McRae. Um, he came up with the moniker Cornbread. Um, so it actually started because he had a crush on a girl in school and he wanted to impress her. So he started writing Cornbread everywhere in his neighborhood and then all around Philly. Um, neighbors around Philly were confused. Why would someone write the word Cornbread on <laughs> homes and businesses <laughs> and cars? Did he like, did people know that he was the guy That's doing it? That's a great question. Or? In circles. So it's, you know, the people who, maybe some other taggers, certainly his friends knew, but not the public at large. Or... I was thinking the police, like they probably wouldn't have liked it so Eventually, much. Eventually, he got arrested a few times. Yeah, uh-huh. so the police figured it out. Like, did he did he make like bubble letters, or was it just tagging his name? Or sure. So it all started with tags, and then it developed. What's oh. the difference between tagging and graffitiing? So tags are like quick little throw ups of your name. The quick little thing that you see um, usually in black graffiti or black spray paint. Uh, and then graffiti is sort of the bigger pieces. You know, that's like the bubble letters stuff you see in New York. Um, that it takes much more time and can control, and it takes like years and years and years really. Oh, to and master. can control can so it's spray can spray paint cans. Yes, huh? yes. Did were they new? Is that what kind of led to this or no? Yeah. So they uh, were introduced to the market about ten years prior in 1949. Um, so yeah, about a decade later is when Daryl started doing this. And um, so 19 like in the late 1950s, you're saying. 
modern graffiti started? Uh, I would say mid-60s, yeah. And so about 15 years after, yeah, the invention of the, of the can. And did he, like, what was his profile or reputation here? Did he become well-known for it? So he got a lot of notoriety, especially when he first started. He was a little younger. He mostly did, like, cars and homes and, and small businesses. So the neighborhood knew him, the neighbors knew him, and the local press sort of knew who he was, too. There'd be articles every once in a while. Uh, in the early 70s, there was a rumor that he died. Um, he didn't die, of course. He's still with us today. Um, but there was a rumor that he died, so he wanted to sort of prove that he wasn't dead. And so he broke into the Philadelphia Zoo um, and tagged Cornbread Lives onto an elephant. Oh, Cornbread. That is um, awesome. So when he did that, he... I mean, not for the elephant, but yeah. <laughs> so, so he must be 70 years old now. Is he like this 70-year-old guy who's like, I was Cornbread back in the day. Yo, he's... <laughs> awesome. So one of the highlights of my career has been being in a show with him. So I showed my photos next to some work he did. Um, yeah, he's got like a website now. He sells t-shirts. Like he is the legend. There were certainly like other taggers around the same time. The thing he did was get international press and really blow it up. So when he broke into the zoo, there's also a rumor that he um, broke into the Philadelphia International Airport and tagged his name on, a Jackson, on the Jackson 5's airplane. Hmm. Um, there's no real proof of that. It's kind of just an urban legend, but it might have happened. Um, but yeah, he... When he broke into the zoo, he got a lot of press, um, and it sort of blew up this emerging art scene. Mike Maughan, uh, Conrad is telling us about the uh, father of modern graffiti. This is exactly the kind of idea that I'm glad we have a live fact checker for, because no offense to you at all, but it's the kind of thing that could be full of urban legend, as you've acknowledged. Thank you, um, thank you. But, but <laughs> that said... <laughs> But that said, it's also the kind of thing that if it's true, it's really the legend is, is large. So, Mike, I'm really curious to know what you can tell us. Yes, so this is actually widely held to be true, that Daryl McRae slash Cornbread started this entire new movement, uh, and there's not a whole lot of dispute. So uh, street art, which is a separate thing, began in the 1970s in New York, but this graffiti piece was was very different. And so it's interesting because this this isn't actually new. He just started the modern movement. But the first known example of modern style graffiti is from the ancient Greek city of Ephesus. And it's said to be an advertisement for prostitution. It shows a hand resembling a heart along with a footprint and a number, which is believed to indicate that there's a nearby brothel and the handprint is symbolizing payment. <laughs> Thank you, Mike and Conrad Benner. Thank you so Thank much you. for playing Thank you. something I don't know. Great job. Can we give uh, one more hand to all our guests tonight? I thought they were fantastic. Really well done. Uh, our live audience is about to pick a winner, but first, the three of us, my co-host James Altucher, fact-checker Mike Maughan, and me, Stephen Dubner, we will each weigh in with a non-binding vote. Remember, everyone, the three voting criteria did... Our guests tonight tell us something we truly did not know. Was it worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? So I'll take the first category tonight. Of everything we heard tonight, something that we truly did not know. I'll be honest with you. I learned a great deal tonight. I learned a lot about sign language. I learned a lot about tahina, um, more about urine than I ever thought I would need to know, the tattoo stuff, word wagons was so interesting, the, um, the father of modern graffiti. But I think if I had to pick one, if I had a binding vote, which I don't, 
I loved learning, James, that roaches have a value, really, in terms of, you know, biomechanics or whatever it is that could translate over to, um, you know, humankind, whether for personal stuff or for machines. So I wonder with that one, why don't we voluntarily amputate all our limbs and replace them with cockroach-like limbs to be like superheroes? Could be the $6 million six-legged man, yeah. Um, the next criterion, James, is um, worth knowing. So what did you hear that you thought was really worth knowing? I am just amazed by all the uses for urine. <laughs> <laughs> like, and how, like, every guest afterwards uh, said, oh, then urine was, like, peed into the cannon that cockroaches <laughs> would carry. And then urine was used in uh, tattoos. So it seems like... I think there's a best-selling book here. Yeah. And I challenge members of the audience, each member of the audience, to write their own book about urine with urine. <laughs> Mike Mon, on pure factuality, there, was, there were a lot of facts. They seemed to be true. Um, tell me what tickled your fact-checking fancy. Um, so, so I will say, I, I mean, we learned a lot of things. We had all these dialects and sign language, the, the word wagons, everything going on there. I'd have to say that, uh, Conrad, from a truth perspective, I'm going to go with you because you had the thing that was least likely to be true and it turned out to actually be true. So, so props to you for that. Good point. Good point, Mike Mon. All right, then, audience, you've heard from us, but we don't pick the winner. You do. It's time now to do that. So who will it be? Conrad Benner with Cornbread, the father of modern graffiti, Morgan Obadowski and Linda Huss with Word Wagons, Marcy Engelman with the Iceman Tattooeth, we'll call that one, Andrew Spence with his Robo Roaches, Alexis Pedrick with Urine Urine Everywhere, Mike Salamanoff with everything you ever wanted to know about Tahina but didn't know who to ask, or Jamie Fisher with Sign Language with an Accent. Would you please... Take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. Unfortunately, there can only be one winner, and that winner tonight, Andrew Spence, for telling us about robo-roaches. Congratulations, Andrew. (laughs) To commemorate your victory, Andrew, we would like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge. (laughs) That is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to James Altucher, Mike Maughan, to our guests... And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. Our live engineer in Philadelphia was Nathan Rossborough. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on tmsidk.com. 
You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>